0: Welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, where gaming is for everyone. Join us as we expand the boundaries of the gaming community.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, episode number one hundred and twenty for Wednesday, December twenty second, twenty twenty one. I'm your host, Ken Gagné,
0: and I'm Captain Sabriel Master. Wait, no, what show are we on?
1: Wrong podcast. Wrong podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, today's guest is Sabriel Mass, and she is a veteran of the Polygamer podcast. She was on episode number 21 way back in May of 2015 and episode number 62 back in March of 2017, as long as the co-host on SideQuest episodes of Polygamer, where we talked about Star Trek Beyond and Wonder Woman. Sabriel's former appearances on this show focused on discussions about freelance writing, being an indie game reviewer being a Let's Player, and then more recently talking about Overwatch, because she works for Overbuff, a stats-tracking website for Overwatch, the popular first-person shooter from Warcraft developer Blizzard, also known as Activision Blizzard. It has been almost five years since Sabriel has been on the show to talk about her accomplishments, and a lot has changed both in the gaming landscape and in her diverse portfolio of of accomplishments, so I thought it'd be a great opportunity to bring back to the show Sabriel Maston, who is also my co-host on the Transporter Lock podcast, which we launched four years ago in the time since her last appearance on Polygamer. So Sabriel, welcome back to Polygamer.
0: Thank you, thank you. And as you're listening all the things we talked about in the past, I'm thinking one of these days I'm going to figure out what I want to be when I grow up.
1: the most interesting people I know don't know what they want to be when they grow up I think there is some statistic out there that you have like five career changes in your life I'm making that number up but I totally believe it and I'm looking forward to all of your careers because they're (laughs) all so fascinating, Sabriel. You do so much fun, cool stuff. As I just mentioned, Overwatch, Dungeons & Dragons, Let's Playing. How many of the things from when you were on the show originally almost seven years ago do you still do? Are you a Let's Player? Are you an indie game reviewer?
0: Uh, I do not review indie games anymore unless I happen to play one and talk about it on the Twitter. All right, once in a while still. Not as much as I did then, but still do that here. Be it usually about video games, but I have started dabbling in writing material for Dungeons & Dragons to sell. And then there's some new things that we're going to start talking about as well.
1: Yes, and that's very exciting. I love Dungeons & Dragons. I admit, I love the idea of Dungeons & Dragons. I don't play it myself. But I had Amanda on the show, our mutual friend, to talk about DMing as a librarian. And I understand you're also... Is it Do you prefer the term DM or GM?
0: I mean, I use DM, but I haven't really thought about a preference, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Uh, When people ask me, I will say I'm a dungeon mistress.
1: Mm, I like it. (laughs) And that is fifth edition Dungeons & Dragons?
0: Yeah, actually, um, (laughs) I have tried to run some old editions before, and some of the players loved it, and some of the players did not. But um, we can dive into that if you want to talk about it. But uh, uh, no, the thing is usually you run the current stuff.
1: How old is old?
0: 1E and 2E, which are from the late 70s, early 80s.
1: So second edition is what I grew up with. Of course, as you know, we called it Advanced Dungeons & Dragons,
0: mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Uh, which is so funny. The AD&D, I, I guess they dropped that because it was a little intimidating for people who want to get into it. They're like, wait, where's basic Dungeons & Dragons? I want to start at the, at the beginner.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I had this group online who have been playing 5E for quite a while. That's what they call Fifth edition. And I said, "Do you want to try one of these old ones?" And because I think it'd be kind of neat to see, you know, the roots of the game. Mm -hmm. And uh, a few of them were like, "All right, yeah, let's do this." And we had three players one afternoon, had a blast. And if, um, but we also didn't take it seriously, and we know that (laughs) Gary Gygax was very problematic, and we we understood all this stuff, but we just played along with it, had fun. And we tried to tell these other people who were kind of poo pooing on the idea and who didn't want to play before. And like, we had a blast, like, okay, I guess we'll try it. <laughs> but those people didn't really seem to be really in it, into it, into it as we were. And mm-hmm. so uh, they did not have as much fun as we did, but uh, there were still good times. And it's good to show them where the game or how far the game had evolved in 30, 40 years. It was a fun little trip.
1: I like your use of the word evolve because that doesn't necessarily mean improvement. It means changing to adapt to one's environment. And there are still people out there who prefer the older edition because they think that's better, but that may be indicative of the era in which they grew up playing it.
0: Oh yeah, there's still like, uh, what's it called, OS, um, OS, uh, old school revival, OSR. Uh, People will still, maybe they don't play AD&D or or just specifically a game called Dungeons & Dragons, but they play a game that's basically the same thing where they have the old style type of rules, the uh, similar things like that, where it's kind of like the generic version of D&D, but it's D&D still. Just maybe different names for abilities and stuff like that. Um, But people, a lot of older people usually, like to play those old classics um, or under those old rules. I mean, that's how I first started playing D&D, was second edition, maybe a little bit first edition.
1: For somebody who is familiar with one edition, is it difficult to transition to another one, or is it basically like starting over and learning a whole new game?
0: Uh, it's starting over. Mm. Fourth edition and fifth edition are the closest, but even them... and Third third and up are the closest to each other, but still, they are also drastically different from each other. Um, I mean, one of the big things is the D20 system. Back in the day, you may have heard of the word stacko.
1: To hit armor class zero.
0: Yes. Uh, back then let's just say 5th edition and 4th edition and 3rd edition all had uh, you roll a d20 and you add modifiers to increase your score, like a plus 2 in your attacker, a plus 2 to dex. Well, back then, in 1st and 2nd edition, you thaco, which meant um, you roll your d20, you roll a 15, you got a 15, but then you do like subtraction with your modifiers and all this weird math that, it makes sense when you play the game, but it was a complicated way to calculate things like that. Uh, it was basically the same concept, but just a much more convolut- complicated and convoluted method to get there.
1: <laughs> well, I think that stemmed from the fact that in those early editions, a lower armor class number was better. So if you were buck naked, you had an armor class of 10. And if you had plate mail, you had an armor class of 0. And mm-hmm. that was a little backwards.
0: Yep. I mean, I see where they get all this stuff from. It was just, um, like I said, a more convoluted way to go about it. And uh, the game is much more friendly to newbies now.
1: Talking about where Dungeon Dragons came from and all the various iterations, I was recently reading the book Game Wizards by John Peterson, published earlier this year by MIT Press. And it is a rather academic look at almost the business side of Dungeon Dragons and how TSR was formed by Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson, the co-inventor of Dungeon Dragons. Like most stuff from MIT Press, I found it a little dry. And it wasn't looking at the inspirations for the gameplay, like why are elves this way or where have dragons come from, etc. But as you can imagine, Gary Gygax is also a main character in this book. He's also the subject of a documentary that I backed on Kickstarter. Haven't seen the documentary yet because it hasn't come out, but you did mention that he is a problematic individual. Don't want to go too much into that, but for those who are unfamiliar with that aspect of the co-creator of D&D, can you give us a little bit more color?
0: Okay, the very basic version of it: white guy in the Midwest (laughs) who didn't see as much of the world as a, you know, there's the trope of white nerd, white cis nerd. I mean, that kind of applies to him, and I don't think anything was—I don't think most of the things that he created was of ill intent, but uh, it didn't age well. How about that? Uh, And so problematic in that way.
1: I see, because usually when I hear problematic, I think of somebody who. Was abusive to people.
0: Yeah, you're right. Uh, Maybe I could have chosen a better word.
1: No, no. I mean, I I think problematic is accurate. I just brought my own perception to that word.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, you have your biases when you are surrounded by white people and a white culture. Like, I'm from small town Minnesota. There was maybe one person of color per 3,000, 5,000 people. Like, (laughs) I was very naive for a very long part of my life until I moved out of home. And you just see culture, a world in a different way that is um, suboptimal. And that shows here. He was very much a a nerd who I think he was well-meaning and very logical, but it just did not age well. It was not good for the time, but it did not age well. Sure.
1: You know, there, that, that saying, he knows not what he does. And uh, he never had the experience that you and I have had of being able to travel to other places and meet people. But I do know that over the last 10, 20 years, Dungeons & Dragons has tried to be more inclusive in their illustrations and in the examples they give in the rulebooks, where it's not all bearded white barbarians bashing down doors.
0: Exactly. I mean, he also didn't think any women were interested in D&D beyond fleeting interest. So, women don't play D&D. I mean, he had this kind of, of a mentality, through even through his form posting in the early 2000s before he died. And so, I mean, he was problematic, too.
1: And unfortunately, that's a mindset that is still pervasive among many demographics, including nerds today. Yep. And I, and I don't say nerds derogatorily. Some people prefer geeks, but I just mean people who are really passionate about niche subjects, which includes you and me.
0: I remember like in the late 90s, there was definitely a quote-unquote difference between nerds and geeks and dweebs. And maybe dweebs is still quote-unquote bad thing to be, but you wanted to be a geek and not a nerd, you know? And now I'm just like, whatever, we're all geeks and nerds and we just love our fandoms. Uh, That's cool. As long as you're nice about it and not a gatekeeper, it's cool.
1: Yeah, my own personal definition is you don't know somebody is a geek until you happen to touch upon the topic that they are really passionate about.
0: Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh,
1: (laughs) Anyway. But again, uh, that is not meant as a judgment or a criticism, especially on Polygamer, where we are open to all passions here. So anyway, you are a dungeon mistress, but you started as a player. You
0: know what? You can call me DM. <laughs> I call me dungeon mistress now that I hear it comes out of your mouth.
1: <laughs> I mean, no matter how good friends we are, I think you're right on this one. So you are a DM. How long were you a player before you decided to leap behind the DM screen?
0: All right, so I played D&D when I was uh, in junior high, high school. Didn't really play much. Oh, actually, there's was one incident I'll get into. Um, more or less, there was probably a good 15, 20-year gap where I didn't play. I had no idea what 5th edition even was. Um, but I've been playing for seven years now, six years, give or take. Um, person I was seeing at the time, It's like, hey, I see they're running Dungeons and Dragons at the comic shop downtown. You want to go play? Like, sure. I haven't played this forever. And get there, we had a good time. We played D and D. It turned out to be a thing called Adventurers League. It was an organized play. And I thought it was just going to be a one night thing. And then uh, at the end of the night, DM was like, "All right, see you next week." And I was like, "All right, guess I made a commitment." And I'm, but I had fun, so I'm all for it. And playing since I started DMing like a year or two later, I like being the dungeon master i like running the show i like being the i consider a storyteller of a shared experience and i like that aspect of it a lot that seems like a
1: rather fast transition from player to dm only a year or two
0: part of me is i like knowing how things worked when playing DD, i I like to know like why x thing happened or what's behind the next door but i wanted to know kind of behind the scenes from like the dm point of view and i i was good and never would look ahead of the adventure we were playing because i know that's Nope, that's, that was beyond the scope of me. But um, I did want to start running other adventures. And so I want to see like how adventures are written. How do DMs know what they even know? And how do you run this thing? And I just love, love knowing how things work. And that's kind of like why I jumped to the DM spot. And d d has a... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? De- no, deluge is a lot, right? The opposite of a, a scarce number of DMs drought is probably there's not as many dms as there are players and but i since i like knowing how things work i want to give it a shot like hey i'm gonna run something so i did i mean sometimes DMing is the person's first experience at D. mine it was just second and but i love it so
1: just to be specific was there an occasion you were rising to where there were players looking for a dm and
0: there wasn't one at first no i wanted to try it give it a shot and i did for a few weeks and then all of a sudden like a new book dropped And the store I was playing at was like, hey, we need DMs. Here we go, Brie. You can DM tonight. Here's a free book. Okay, I guess I'm DMing tonight. And so uh, it was out of necessity, but I was already showing interest in it and doing it. And so uh, and ran a hardcover, which is one of the official published adventures um, for a good nine, ten months or so. And I loved it.
1: Is that what some of us would call a module?
0: You know, I used to still use these terms too, but no. A uh, campaign is what... In the old days, it was probably closer to a campaign. A module usually meant like a one-off adventure, uh, where a campaign usually meant like a series of adventures that were all tied to each other. And nowadays, they call it usually like a hardcover.
1: Gotcha. Okay, yeah, that is the distinction I would use too. I remember growing up with Keep on the Borderlands and the Isle of Dread as yep. modules and trying to figure out how to string those together so that you could keep playing the same characters and thus make it into a campaign. Yeah. You started off, as you said, playing six or seven years ago. You made the leap behind the DM screen a year or two later, which means you were playing as the DM before the pandemic. Clearly, that has changed things the last two years. Have you been able to maintain your gaming
0: group? Yeah. Uh, so, so right when the pandemic hit, I had started a new campaign. And like, oh, crap, we can't meet it together anymore. Like, we literally just started like two, three weeks before we realized, like, okay, we got to play at home now. And that group lasted for about a month or two. But I had two players who were less, less suboptimal in attendance and telling us if they're going to show up or not. And so that, that one a little fizzled, but that's okay. We didn't get too far into it. And then I realized, like, well, with online play, I am not limited to the people I can scrounge up locally here in Fargo. I can pull from all over the world. And so I did. <laughs> I had one player locally still. And uh, the rest were a bunch of friends who I would known online. And close people. And we've been playing since. We've been playing, gosh, I guess since then. We've, we're in a campaign that more or less started the summer of the pandemic. We're nearing the... well. What's the word i for? I don't want to say end of the campaign, but we're nearing the main story that kicked off that campaign. And whether we'll continue or not, it's up to the players. But... But a year and a half, we're getting there.
1: Wow, so when you draw players from all around the world, do they already know each other?
0: Uh, Some of these didn't. I may have known, them, but uh, sometimes they don't know each other. So they come in here and uh, have a little meet and just start basically learn each other and meet each other as we play.
1: Does that make teamwork harder when you're meeting each other for the first time in a fantasy setting like that?
0: Uh, see, when it comes to like, I have my roots in 5e, in Adventurers League, the organized play where you, the expectation is you just show up and play with whoever shows up. Adventurers League is meant to be that way. It's pl- drop and play. You bring a character that's within the parameters of the uh, organization organizational thing. Uh, so you're all roughly equal power level and uh, plug and play and just play with the people you're at. And you're, you're just if you're good with uh, talking and you know hanging up. That's no problem at all. At first, it's usually like rudimentary things like, what should we do? What should we do? And as over time, as you learn each other, you know, you start learning players, how they run, how they work. You find out like what interests them, either be it in mechanics or lore. And uh, eventually, you know, you start building these usually some friendships there. Or even, even if it's not like close friendships, you know, you, you get to know each other pretty well, especially when you play. 100 sessions or so, however long it's been.
1: And how do they coordinate what characters to play? Because everybody wants to bring their own character to the table, but you still have to have some decisions about, well, we need at least one healer, we need at least one ah, tank, etc.
0: No. 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 Maybe some people will <laughs> tell you that. But 5th edition is also a little different. But I tell players, like, play what you want. I worry about the balance to me on how deadly this is. Because 5th edition is a system set up for, while you can heal in combat, it's meant to be more of a beat the crap out of the enemies as quickly as you can and heal up afterwards, if, if it's possible. Uh, you might do some triage in combat, but uh, it's all about action, action economy and trying to make sure there's fewer enemies, so you have more. You want more people doing more actions on your side versus uh, people doing actions on their side.
1: That's true, because I'm thinking, I know this is a really outdated example, but the original Final Fantasy on Ape bit Nintendo... Like, you want to have, like, a fighter, a thief, a black mage, and a white mage. Or you can just have four white mages and play the game on the hardest difficulty setting. (laughs) But one of the reasons that's difficult is because the game does not adapt to your party composition. Whereas you, as the DM, can be more dynamic and can adjust the encounters accordingly.
0: Exactly. Like, I mean, Dungeons & Dragons doesn't have a pure concept of tank like we think of in the video game sense. You have some people who can maybe draw attention... Maybe logically it makes sense for some things to attack them, but like I'm like, no. Play in a setting where people, a little smarter than that, they know to, as the term is geek the mage, go after the casters. But then they do that too. They know to go after the casters. So I run monsters a little bit more intelligently. Like just, this person hit me for the most hit points. Therefore, I must focus on them. Ah.
1: We were talking earlier about geek versus nerd. There's apparently yet another definition of geek there.
0: I, you know, I don't. This is from when well, I my short time playing Shadowrun. The phrase is geek the mage, where you just go after the caster. You focus fire the caster.
1: Today I learned a new word.
0: Uh, Yep, geek. It's a new word. <laughs> My group, when we switched to online play, we were like, okay, what form are we going to take to do this in? There are a number of services online, like Roll20 or Forge something. Forge, uh, Forge uh, V. Uh, yeah, it's right there. But uh, anyway... um a lot of online battle mats and systems that are meant to help facilitate online play by bringing all the players under one banner. Like use our chat room, use our video service forge foundry. Uh, that's something like this close, but anyway, and I was like, well, we can try this, but these all cost money, of course. And, um, like how much do we want to invest in this? How long is this pandemic going to go on? If we just all huddle up for two weeks, we can all go back to playing in a few weeks. Uh, ha, ha, ha.
1: How naive we were.
0: Yep. Uh, but uh, and so we played around with trying to figure out different services. And what we just ultimately settled on was the chat platform, Discord. Mm-hmm. And um, because of the pandemic, necessity being the mother of invention, or people just being bored, have made free versions of like online battle mats if we ever need them or i'll just use theater of the mind and describe what's going on if it's a simple combat you are within melee of x creature what do you want to do things like that and for basically any non-combat it's almost entirely theater of the mind for me but we play on discord we play all in video together and we have uh i let my players i trust them they can roll Locally, or they can use the automatic dice roller That's so we can all see the results. Uh, we use D&D Beyond Character Sheets, which is another service. of um, uh, an online character sheets that you can bring anywhere. Yeah, it, it's turned out great. I think it's awesome. I really, really do enjoy playing online because that means I have digital access to all my digital books. I do love having the physical books and still buy them all. But for quick access, when I need a quick search or what does a spell do, I can just Google or go to DD Beyond, search uh, what does a spell do, 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 and search there instantly. There's my result. I don't need to search through page 78, you know, like that, um, which is awesome. But there is something said to playing in person. Over the summer, when COVID was at its lowest, I got to actually host a little group in person. It was awesome. It was great to have an in-person group thing again because there are different dynamics socially when you play online versus play in person. Like when you play in person, it's much easier to not interrupt them. Even if you can see them on camera, you you know, you kind of still got to figure out like, oh, who, who, who's going to say, it? no, oh, sorry, interrupted you. In person, you know, you can kind of read things and when people are going to talk and whatever like that. And so there's a total different dynamic you have to get used to to play online versus play in person. You know, you're together in person. There's something special about that, too. Actually having actual minis to move around or just being across the way from someone or talking about the adventure afterwards and going out for waffles. And the snacks. The snacks. The snacks. The drinking. Whatever you want to drink.
1: (laughs) To your point, body language is a big part of communication. You can see people's intentions before they verbalize them, but sometimes before they even know them. And it's important to be able to see that, to include them in the conversation and to anticipate actions, especially as we mentioned earlier about when you're a team and you're trying to collaborate, especially with people you've never met before.
0: Exactly. And so I think I'll always love in-person play the most, but I really like online play not too far behind because it just lets me play with people all around the world and make do pretty well.
1: You said that you got your start as a DM when somebody gave you a book to play through. And now you mentioned that your team is about to arrive at the main storyline of the campaign. Is this a campaign of your own creation?
0: Yes, it is. One of my favorite settings is the Eberron setting, which is... It's a D&D world. I to say steampunk is the closest analogy to the real world where people who don't play understand it. But it's a magic punk society where magic is just everyday part of technology. Uh, it's not actual steampunk, but it's the closest analogy people understand. You have these quote-unquote corporations who are in charge of various types of magic, like airships and uh, sea travel or a uh, lightning rail, which is the train. And uh, there was this massive war, like a hundred-year war, and the thing that ended it was this huge like, disaster that completely destroyed one country and no one knows what happened. And so there was a massive like, Cold War ceasefire <laughs> going on, and so tensions are tight. are like, oh, people don't know. All the countries are still a little nervous around each other because they're not sure how, the, how this catastrophe happens, so we don't want to fight just in case it happens again. But this setting is so much fun for me, and I created my own adventure here for it. I've done multiple adventures here for it. The creator just has a, here's a basic outline of uh, this world, maybe this country here, and I just took off with it made it my own.
1: Wow. So you must have to put a lot of time into preparing for these gameplay sessions with a lot of creative writing and editing of your of your own work.
0: Yes and no. Uh, some weeks I'm just like, I just wing it off, top, I mean, off the top of my head. But I do put a little bit, sometimes I put lots of work into it, depending on what really the players kind of set themselves up there before. Um, setting up like dungeons for combat what so takes me the most. Because, you know, I have to make a place for them to explore What are they going to fight in here? What are they going to find in here? Is there going to be cool loot in here? What's a cool treasure item to put in here? And other stuff, like the politics of that, I'll put some thought into it. Uh, But ultimately, it's player-led. What are they going to do? How are they going to interact with it? Right now, one of the players is uh, their backstory was they have the soul of their evil dead aunt in them and they made that a year and a half ago and player-led thing, like, hey, a year and a half later, like we should try to get that out of you, and she's like, "Yeah, we should." And so I just had to make a whole new adventure, in a whole other part of the world where they can try to get this other soul out of her. I love that part of D and D. There's no like no guidance on how that happens, so I have to invent it, and it's so much fun for me. I love it.
1: Have you ever taken an improv class?
0: Nope. Huh. <laughs> Very creative, apparently in some ways, but nope. Just uh, off the top of my thing, a lot of t- you know a lot of the inspiration comes from other media, be it books, TV or whatnot i mean like i read a romance novel that had dragons in it and like last summer the dragons you could tell when they were in human form like what color dragon they were because of the color of their eyes and that became a part of my world and it's like that was really cool and my players like now when they look at people they see someone's kind of acting weird they look at the eyes of the person they're talking to to see what color they are and they have a lot of fun with that
1: That's really cool how you get to synthesize. I attended a conference a couple years ago where they said that if you are in a creative field, you should spend at least 20% of your time consuming content. Oh, gotcha. Because you need to know not only what the landscape is into which you're going to be putting your own work, but you also need to seek sources for inspiration. And that doesn't mean borrowing and stealing other ideas so that nothing that you create is original. It just means, you know, figuring out what works and what doesn't so that you can iterate and improve upon it.
0: Absolutely. Uh, I mean, like right now, my players are in this world where like literally nothing bad happens. Like there are no nefarious plots, no nothing. They're basically in, I don't want to say heaven, but they're in a plane of existence where it's just everything is perfect and good in, in every way. Uh, and trying to make an adventure <laughs> where there's still danger in that kind of world is really fascinating and fun challenge and they have loved it and they're almost out of there. But yeah, uh, consume other media Uh consuming other media. is one of the huge thing of being the creative life.
1: And would you say that a lot of your inspiration comes from any particular medium? Like, are, mm. are you watching TV, watching movies, reading comic books, playing video games, all of the above?
0: I mean, hmm. I couldn't tell you exact percentage, but like, this is like the third campaign ever in this setting. The first one loosely based on the, like, if you've ever watched agent Carter loosely based on the bomb things that were there, Uh, there was a plot to destroy a a city with uh, bombs. I just watched, I was watching agent Carter and I'm like, this plot is pretty cool. I'm going to try to steal it. And so I, or or not steal it, but but I'm going to borrow it. And I adapted it to my own thing. Um, The idea of that there were, An evil plot. Evil, you know, masterminds putting bombs around the city was all mine, but just got the inspiration. I got the juices flowing. Here uh, I started this campaign off with, I wanted to start the the, um, I got the idea watching something on YouTube of um, trying to get players to will they question the status quo or not? And so I set up a thing where will they help the crown or will they help this quote unquote terrorist group um, fight the crown? Uh, that was the whole premise of what this thing, I didn't know how that was going to look, but I created two factions, the royalty and this other group who are at odds. Who does the, who do the group side with? They sided with the, uh, um, the, the, I want to say terrorists. I use, this is what the Royals call them. I, um, without knowing the faction names, I guess it immediately, I, I don't bring up the names because no, it'll mean nothing to anybody else, but uh, they sided with the rebels. We'll say that for a while, until they realized the Rebels were doing some very dirty, evil things. And Mm. now they're like, we'll help the Royals, but we're still not siding with them. And it's been a fun little dichotomy of seeing the players work through that, working with the status quo to keep things as they are, working through to change things to a different way. And it's been so much fun.
1: Do your players ever identify your sources of inspiration? Are they ever like, wait a minute, this reminds me of Agent Carter.
0: You know, they haven't, actually. Sometimes, because I just love talking about it, I will reveal. (laughs) But uh, a lot of people will say, like, don't ever do that. But I, I love telling. I like how showing how uh, things work. I like looking how things work. And so I like how telling how things work behind the scenes as well.
1: Now, your first appearance on the Polygamer podcast, we talked a lot about your freelance writing, which we alluded to earlier. And I understand that now, within this new hobby of D&D, you have taken on the role also of freelance editing. Is that correct?
0: Yes. So my old job uh, working in an office, was doing a lot of editing type work for lawyers on very boring legal documents. And uh, I quit that job in 2016 or so. It took me five years to think, hey, I could put those skills to use and help creatives. <laughs> uh, and I love d and I could help people do it here. And so kind of a recent, it's, it's been a recent endeavor really the last few months here. But um, see, so yeah, I'm starting working with other writers on their D&D projects. And, um, helping mold them into adventures or supplements or whatever that uh, they will be selling or do sell to other people. And I have been loving it. It's been fun working on the creative side of editing instead of the dry lawyer side of editing. Um, (laughs) But uh, I met some really cool people. Um, Got a nice little community of other editors I can talk to for like, Hey, what do you think about this? Or, uh, Am I wrong about this wording here, or you know things like that, or just working with creatives, helping them? I just love the idea of the process of helping them craft something to be the best it can be.
1: And how do you solicit these clients? Are these people you've worked with before or played with before?
0: One, I mean, so, some some are friends, some are people. There's a there's Discord's out there, especially the DMs Creator or DMs Guild the website, uh, creators Discord, um, where people will have. And I was like, "Hey, I'm looking for an editor. I'm looking for a writer," and so that's where I first got a few of my clients, and I've had people just reach out to me like, "Hey, can you help me with this?" This I'm like, "Sure," and there we go.
1: And what kind of editing are we talking about? We're we talking about like punctuation and grammar. Are we talking about like actual gameplay where you're coming back with feedback, such as this monster is too high a level?
0: Uh, it runs the whole gambit, but it most ultimately depends on what they need. But I tend to go through the basics of developmental editing. Hey, like, this is not working. This It's no sense to your story. This paragraph contradicts this other paragraph here to uh, line editing. Like line editing, like here, um, I'm going to make this sentence actually word much gooder. And then at the end, proofreading. Make sure punctuation and whatnot is precise. Um, well, it depends on need and how much they want to spend. Most people so far have just asked for the whole gambit of like, help me make this adventure make sense. And because I've been playing for seven years in the current iteration, like I have I think I have a really good understanding of the game uh, and how to run it, what makes sense, what's the tough encounter. But part of that also is like, hey, this monster you designed, um, it doesn't match the stats that you created for it. Or this is a little tough for this adventure. But playtesting is another thing. That's what other people do. But I can send them my best idea or suggestion for a thing. Like, hey, I don't think this is right. Or I think you can go a little harder on this.
1: So you're not bringing these unfinished products to a team and trying them out?
0: No, no, that's for someone else to do.
1: You said that you have this community of editors that you work with. That's the, the DMs Guild website you mentioned?
0: Oh, oh, there are some there, but I just have personal acquaintances and friends too.
1: Oh, I see. Gotcha.
0: But there is an editor chat there. There's a writer chat there. I mean, this place also have a couple projects that I wrote some new classes for D&D or subclasses um, for. Uh, which should be coming out soon. I think they were supposed to come out a week ago, but it is out of my hands. I just made the contribution, and it's up to the the coal later, I guess I don't know what the word is, um, to finally put it to paper and print it. This is
1: actually a printed product that people will be able to buy like online or in stores?
0: Online. Uh, it, it's just a PDF. Uh, I don't think they're actually going to go to paper, but no, they, they, DMs Guild is a website where people will put their creations on there and... Either give them away for free or sell them. And this person was like, hey, I'm writing or I'm collecting a bunch of classes, homebrew classes under this theme. Do you want to contribute? And he's like, here's your royalty. If you do, I'm like, cool, sure. And I did. And uh, I know they were going to try to get that published like last weekend. but I don't think it's out yet. But Anyway, I have a couple cool classes of classes out there I think are neat. You know, I don't think he did any playtesting before he's going to publish. So I'm a little nervous about that. And I think I'm going to have to do that myself and just send him edits and saying, hey, change XYZ in the future here.
1: (laughs) Well, that's one of the nice things about a PDF is it's very easy to iterate upon and release new versions.
0: Exactly. Uh, I'm just a little nervous about it. just like publishing it as is and like, oh gosh, Uh, no, (laughs) but okay. Yep.
1: Oh, that's exciting. I'm looking forward to finding it. And you said it'll be on the DM's Guild website.
0: Yeah, and when, when it does get eventually published, I'll put it on my website. You can find that at sabriel.me. I'll repeat that again at the end of the podcast, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Or maybe I've linked... I can, I also have the, the uh, domain sabriel.game. I don't remember if that goes to my Twitter yet or if that goes to my website. But my Twitter links to my website, so it doesn't really matter. I just really dig... This being, how the, it feels nice to feel be creative again, and um, and maybe make a little bu- few bucks on the side. But for me, I do it for me. I do it for me, and I, I'm really enjoying it.
1: You mentioned that there are multiple different kinds of editing, developmental, line editing, copy editing, etc. Can you give a broad estimate for what those various services would cost somebody?
0: I go on the cheap end because since I'm just kind of building a portfolio and building my creative creative portfolio versus the boring legal portfolio, which I can't share because it's all private documents. But I mean, for a lot of types of editing, you're looking at two cents per word for each type of editing um, on the low end. And so if you have like a 3,000 word project, you know, that makes decent money for me, but I gotta make a living too. I gotta have a, I gotta live too. Sometimes for uh these D&D projects, it's, you know, people who don't make as much money. I would work on a royalty a basis for how much the product sells I will make earnings off of. And, you know, it's it's much smaller. Uh, but, you know, I take that into account when I say, like, yeah, I'll help you. I will put more priority on people who I'm getting more money out of. Not going to lie. But I want to help these people, too, because they're cool people they're a cool project, and it's not a huge, huge ordeal for me to take time and help them with the royalty who are not going to make as much money, but uh, might help them, might make more commissions in the future, and uh, all cool. Oh, cool.
1: Well, I think the most interesting part of that answer for me was there are multiple ways to charge for a project. There is a flat fee. There's an hourly fee. And in your case, you're charging per the word. And I think that makes a lot of sense because some people read and edit quickly. And if you're getting paid by the hour, that's not fair to them. But this is more dependent on the size of the project, not necessarily... What it'll take you to edit it. I mean, there is clearly a correlation there, but it's going to vary. So I think this is a more consistent way to charge across multiple editors.
0: Right. I mean, some people need more help than others.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: And so there can be difference there too. But um, in general, yeah. I mean, those are the those are the basics. Those are the basics. that. We'll yeah.
1: I mean, that. I mean, two different people could send you different 3,000 word manuscripts and one person you might write back and say this is flawless you just forgot this one comma and the other person you might write back and say this is fundamentally flawed and you need to go back (laughs) to the drawing board and you're going to get paid the same for either one.
0: Right and you know but I like that and I even have one person I've worked with that's multiple projects like I can already see a huge improvement in their writing because they they know how I'm going to say, like, hey, I will just highlight a paragraph and just say fix or shorten. I don't have to say, like, what about it, or I'll just say simplify. And they're like, okay, you're right. And then <laughs> they'll start over and do it again.
1: Yep. I am an editor as well of the magazine Juice GS. And one of my goals when working with my staff of freelance and volunteer writers is not just to make better writing, but to make better writers. Because in exactly. the long term, that's a better investment in my time.
0: Exactly. Exactly.
1: You're in the unique position of not only producing your own work for your players to play in with your campaign in Eberron, but also editing other people's work. And we were talking about inspiration. Clearly, you don't want to engage in intellectual property theft. But do you ever read somebody's work and say, gee, I wish I'd thought of that?
0: (laughs) Uh, You know, it hasn't come up specifically like that before. But no, actually, that hasn't come up yet. But I mean, heck, I am going to run one of the adventures I helped edit this, this, in this coming week with some uh, on my online. We're doing a little Christmas break from our campaign for a week. And I'm like, hey, we're going to run this one that's loosely based. I said one shot. It's loosely based on the TV show uh, Taskmaster, but the d d version of it, where the players are just set up in in quote unquote uh, live studio audience and they have to complete tasks. And um, but be creative because, you know, your character, she is your tool set. And so, how do I do that? And so, uh, I think it's going to be fun for them.
1: And what about going the other direction? As I said, you create your own work. Do you hire editors, or since you are an editor, do you do your own work?
0: Uh, oh, I mean, all the stuff I create at this point, uh, for the most part, is uh, stuff that never goes out into the real world. It's just my players see. Uh, I do have like one project I made, and uh, I published it like a year ago before I really. New wizard style and wizards of the wizards of the coast, type things, or uh, you know, editing at a higher level of creative. So I'm going back to rework them, but um, I haven't created a project to sell yet that would warrant an editor yet. How about that? To sell, to sell.
1: When you say that you published something before you were familiar with wizard standards, to what degree? Do wizards' standards matter unless they're the ones publishing your
0: work? Uh, well, I they matter to me because I want to try to make it feel "quote unquote" real or you know official. Um, but it's not like required by any means. There's plenty of work on there that's not up to snuffs, as it were. But um, you know, I want to. Ha- I, I feel like I just want to have some degree of professionalism, especially if I'm going to say like, "Hey, I know my stuff about wizards. Uh, work with me." But then you see this old old product an old project that doesn't quite fit up to it. And see that? What does that say about me? So I'm just going to, I am working on slowly going back and fixing that so it looks a little more uh, modern or up-to-date.
1: And pending the release of that update, have you unpublished the original version?
0: Oh, no, but it's not for, There's it's that it's for free.
1: So people who wanted to find this work online, they oh, could.
0: You can go to my website, sabriel.me, and the portfolio, the Shield Maiden uh, subclass for Artificer.
1: Oh, nice. Very good. I'll include a link to that in the show notes.
0: Uh, if you use my affiliate code, I get a pittance. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and your affiliate code is on your website.
0: Uh no, if you just go to my if you actually use my link specifically, the affiliate code's attached to that as the internet way of doing things.
1: Of course, although the FCC requires that you advertise the fact that you're doing that.
0: Okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> wink wink.
0: Actually, I don't think I get anything if it's a free product.
1: Oh. Well, if they use your link to go to the store to get the free product, but then in that same session they buy something, that might work.
0: Uh cool.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's how it works for me with Amazon and iTunes. Gotcha. So I include my affiliate code in iTunes podcast subscription links. And I, I never got a dime out of it. I was like, well, I guess people are just getting the podcast and not buying anything while they're there. And then one day I logged into my iTunes affiliate store and I realized I had never given them my bank deposit information. Oh, no. And that's why I hadn't gotten paid. So they were accruing the funds and it was a couple hundred bucks. Nothing really life changing, but it's a couple hundred bucks I didn't have before. Oh, dang. I have a friend who had the same experience with Patreon. They thought they were getting paid nothing, and it turned out that they just weren't getting the deposits.
0: (laughs) So make sure you have that set up correctly.
1: Yes. If you are expecting money and you don't get it, it may be your own darn fault. (laughs) Lesson learned. So we've been talking a lot about D&D, and I want to spend at least the last 10 minutes talking about the other thing, or one of the many things, to be honest, that you're well known for on the Twitters, which is...
0: Girls. Oh, yes. Overwatch.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you died doing what you love, being, being very, very gay. gay.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> That's right.
1: So we don't have a lot, enough time to go into what Overwatch is and who plays it and how to play it. We did a whole podcast about that four years ago. But suffice to say, as I mentioned at the top of the hour, it is a first-person shooter published by Activision Blizzard, very much about the online play and the team play, and there are a couple of interesting developments around this game, at least a couple. One is that Overwatch 2 was announced two years ago, and it still doesn't have a release date, does it?
0: Nope. Nope. As much as the community is starving for one and making them up themselves, and every time it doesn't meet that, they get disappointed as if Blizzard lied to them, even though (laughs) it's never had a release date. Uh, Nope.
1: (laughs) Yeah, even right now, looking on Wikipedia, it says, Investor documents released in November 2021 had reported that an initial planned release window in 2022 had been pushed to at least 2023. Mm Mm-hmm. So, we're going to be waiting for that on a while. And even though you work on Overbuff, you don't have any inside scoops about Overwatch 2 to
0: share. No. I cannot say. Confirm, nor deny.
1: (laughs) But they did change the composition, the size of the squads, right?
0: Yeah, it's going from a 6v6 game to a 5v5. Normally, you have two tanks, two damage players, and two support, which is slash healer. And they're saying it's a one tank, and... That's part of probably why it's taking them a little longer, because they have to rebalance the game to having one tank who, you know, makes space and soaks up damage uh, versus two people who do that job. Well,
1: I didn't understand this. Are these slots predefined? You can't have a squad of five tanks?
0: Uh, Correct. Not in normal. Not in normal modes. There are special modes where you can do that, but uh, other stuff like that have different different types of groups of people but uh in the normal modes that mostly people will play yep you have a set role you queue up do you want to play healer do you want to play damage or do you want to play tank or huh. do you want to queue for two of them and see what you get uh or three and see what you get but um yep that the old game before probably when we last talked did not have that feature in the old day you just queued up with a bunch of people and you hope you got to play your role <laughs> hmm. uh but no they made some changes since we last talked where it's two two and two
1: Oh, okay. So it's not that I forgot our last interview, it's that this is a new development. Relatively.
0: Yeah, it's probably been like three years now, but it's been a while since we've talked about this. It's
1: true. I actually, in that time, did buy Overwatch on the Nintendo Switch. It was at the beginning of the pandemic, and it was on sale for the Switch. And I am generally not a first-person shooter, but I knew that my friend Sabriel loved this game, and therefore, not that I would love it, but that I owed it a a, a shot. And so... (laughs) I, I tried surprised.
0: it. I was surprised when you told me you bought it. I'm not gonna lie.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm not opposed to first-person shooters. I love GoldenEye on both the N64 and the Wii. Yeah, this and
0: is so close to GoldenEye, it's just like it.
1: <laughs> okay, I can tell when you're mocking me, and you're mocking me. <laughs> well, maybe if it had been closer to GoldenEye, I would have enjoyed it more. Oh, I, like, I totally. Well, well, here's the thing that is not unique to either Overwatch or to first-person shooters. I don't like playing online with strangers.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh hmm That's why I play usually with friends.
1: Hmm. Maybe I would have had a different experience, but
0: maybe. But I don't, I don't know. But this is a way different game than GoldenEye, which Overwatch Two is going to have PVE content. as it's, it's big selling selling point, and so maybe Overwatch Two be more your style.
1: Player versus enemy.
0: Uh, environment. A environment. Usually, it's usually a tournament for AI. <laughs> Player versus play versus AI. Even if they say PVE. I'm glad you
1: clarified what. Constitutes environment because I would have been like, oh no, player versus a blizzard.
0: Oh no. (laughs) Speaking of going versus blizzard. That's right. How do you like that segue?
1: (laughs) It was subtle until you called it out. Uh, Yeah, so Activision Blizzard has been in the news a lot lately for multiple sexual harassment (laughs) and toxic workplace. Issues which Mm -hmm. have been brought both by employees and by the state of California. The legal proceedings are too numerous and complex to detail here, but there are multiple lawsuits, multiple government bodies involved, and a lot of revelations about how long Blizzard has known about this and how long they have covered it up and allowed it to continue. They've made some minor improvements, like renaming the Overwatch character McCreed, the cowboy. He's now known as who now?
0: Uh, McCree is now Cole Cassidy.
1: Right, because the person he was named after at Activision Blizzard, McCree, is one of the harassers being named in these lawsuits. And yeah. I think they've also said that they're no longer going to name fictional characters after real people.
0: <laughs> uh, correct, yes. And, you know, I think that's why, I, actually, I am in World of Warcraft. Or at least, I'm pretty sure it's me. But I cannot get anyone to acknowledge it, because I don't. I think they don't want to have to take it out.
1: <laughs> well, there's no reason why they would ever have to, because you're on the up and up.
0: Uh, oh, I am. I think I am. I mean, someone probably thinks I did something to slight them.
1: No, not you.
0: <laughs> but, uh, yeah, there's an NPC in World of Warcraft named Sabriel. Huh. That you can fight and get her mount.
1: With... Activision Blizzard, which also publishes World of Warcraft, there have been employee walkouts uh, out of protest for this behavior. How is the Overwatch community reacting to all this news, if they are at all?
0: Uh, online. You know what? You could say Overwatch community, but I think it's online gamers. People like. We kind of talked about this on our Transporter Lock last week, actually, where like community online could be kind of not good. <laughs> or they just want to rage. For the hits and for the likes. And then don't care. Sadly, that is a lot of this here. But also where you get people who outrage and then just go on as life is normal. But sadly, that's also about all you can do. As a consumer, you can do a few things. Not purchase anything anymore from this company. But who are you also hurting with that? Uh, The employees who are actually working at it? Or the C-suite, C-level suite people who are, you know... Actually, benefiting from all that. Um, You can now play their games, or you can just continue playing it. And there you go. I mean, it's hard as a consumer to really know what to do. And there's not, to some level, there's not much we can do in the Overwatch community. There's some people who have stopped playing the game. One of my team members, she stopped playing for two, three months, but she's kind of, and she doesn't play as much anymore, but she still comes back here and there. I don't know how much it actually hurt or not cuz I think a lot of people realize like we can't do much. Stopping playing isn't going to fix the executives at the company.
1: Yeah, because they're already making millions of dollars a year and they have all these golden parachutes that even if they are let go due to sexual harassment, they're going to profit from it and canceling an individual $20 a month subscription plan isn't going to change that. Right. Of course, if the you know, if the majority more than 50% of Overwatch players did that, then they might notice. Well,
0: and even then, Overwatch, it's a one-time fee you pay, and then you never have to pay again.
1: Ah, okay. So you're you're already in. They've already gotten your money.
0: Yeah, and so, like, basically, the more you play, if you think about it, the more you're making them spend.
1: (laughs) Right. Ah, revenge is sweet.
0: (laughs) I mean, that's capitalism in a nutshell, right? I'm like, I intentionally don't go to Walmart as much because of some of their practices. Is it actually hurting Walmart? No. I don't usually go to Chick-fil-A. I think I've gone to them once in the last few years uh, because of their practices against queer people. Does it actually hurt Chick-fil-A? No. <laughs> but I feel better about it. Uh, that's basically all we can do in capitalism.
1: <laughs> yeah, and these snowflakes can create a, a snowball or a blizzard. And, you know, I, I think it can add
0: up. It can, yep. But, sadly, there's just only, only so much we can do. And But as for the community, I mean, this Overwatch community is hurting already because they teased this Overwatch 2 two years ago and we don't have a release date. And they've more or less, they have added things to Overwatch, but we haven't had it. For a time, we were getting a new map every three months, and or every six months, and a new hero every six months alternating. Haven't had that since April 2020. Uh, and so people are starting to kind of feel neglected. Because all their attention is focused on Overwatch 2, and so any kind of any kind of news, the community jumps on, uh, whether it be because of the crap at Activision Blizzard, uh, or if a developer doesn't say the right thing on the boards uh, about the future of the game, uh, uh-huh. the community is just very very high strung right now. I think uh, it's a, uh, that's not the right word, but very very strained, and just by chomping a yeah, I'm chomping at the bit for anything, anything. And if it's not what they tell each other they want to hear, they get mad.
1: So just to clarify what you said earlier about a lot of people, you know, the online communities in almost any fandom can be toxic and regarding the Overwatch issues or the Activision Blizzard issues, people are raging or experiencing outrage. Are they angry over the harassment that Activision is allowed to continue or are they angry that just the opposite—that this this uh, is an issue.
0: You know, I think uh, probably the way I answered this probably reveals the other thing the whole thing. There are people who are mad about uh, what happened at the Blizzard, like me. I still continue to play, but for the most part, the community has just gone back to um, focusing on Overwatch Two.
1: I'm sure there are people who are outraged that McCree got renamed.
0: Uh, yes. Uh, I'll just call him Cassidy from here on. But yeah, there are people who are upset that he was renamed or pretend that they're upset for the hate clicks. I mean, that's how I feel a lot of people do. They don't actually have feelings towards this, but if I just say, I'm mad about it, I get attention. And so I'm going to pretend to be mad about it, and then I do become mad about it. Uh, I think that's the way a lot of people work online. And then it becomes a problem. Because, like, uh, it hasn't happened for a while anymore. Like, when I would talk about on Overbuff Twitter about Cassidy, people would be like, no, it's McCree. I'm like... Mm. (laughs) I don't respond to them, Uh, and those responses have gone to next to zero, and it's been a a whole month, month and a half since the name change. People just fuss at first, and for the most part, most people don't actually care, but they pretend they care, or they say they care.
1: Well, thank you for correcting me when I said uh, his old name, and it wasn't because of an insistence on the old name, It's just because, as not being an Overwatch player, I forgot what the new name
0: was. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's okay. Uh, Maybe I'm more sensitive to it because I'm trans and name-changing and whatnot. (laughs) <laughs> mhm. but yeah uh when it comes to the activision blizzard thing which is a whole freaking mess and i've had you know things that you never think you're gonna have to report on your life when you become a writer for <laughs> a video game uh, I was talk- talking about um toxicity sexual harassment people stealing milk from nursing mothers the, just the weird terrible awful topics that have come up over the last few months it's just wow (laughs) there's been a lot of hell there i hadn't heard that last one yep that one's a newer one came out like a week or two ago oh god okay
1: wow this this wow like the rabbit hole it just goes so deep
0: yep and i mean this is a company who's constantly like we have made our record profits this year now we're gonna lay off 800 people yeah they just announced their they made a bunch more money, this most recent investor call, and then they lay off almost every or a good share of the QA people at this one office in Wisconsin. Uh, like, And now there's actually a strike going on in Wisconsin uh, for these people saying, hire these people back.
1: Yep. I'm looking at a headline on The Verge published on December 3rd. It says, Call of Duty made billions recently. So, of course, Activision Blizzard is laying off QA.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. It's Great. disgusting. And there's actually now a unionization effort working on Activision Blizzard. Hopefully they're actually able to get contracts in order.
1: Well, I hope so, because as I was saying, individual actions don't always amount to something, but group actions can have a much louder voice. And when you are unionized, you have that benefit of people having your back and speaking with a consistent voice that is hard to ignore. So I hope that that happens.
0: Yeah. Sadly, with consumers, a lot of the consumers can only do so much, but it has to come from within in situations like this.
1: Is there anything that you do recommend listeners to this podcast do?
0: If you like playing World of Warcraft, keep playing it. If you like playing Overwatch, keep playing it. Go ahead. It's okay. Uh, if you want to stop, it's also okay. One of my partners stopped playing Blizzard games after this. And it's just that. It's a personal thing. And if, if you don't feel all right playing those games, it's okay. Just don't make other people feel bad if they do keep playing, because that's not really helping either. Um, there's no easy answer to this, and because there's, while well, there's millions of other games to play, maybe those aren't your jam. In this day and age, like, the alternatives to what, like, what, there's like, every company has some crappy thing in their past, be it, uh, Riot, or Blizzard, or Walmart, or Coke. I mean, Coke was still selling to, to uh, Nazi Germany, you know, during the war, Mm-hmm. I mean, where do you draw the line, right? And so you only have so many alternatives. And so you just be smart. Just know about where your money is going. You you can't necessarily do anything about it. It's just the world as it is today. The world as it is today. Uh, but it's okay if you want to stop. It's okay if you want to keep playing.
1: Yeah, and it, I think it's important to... To your point, to, to live out your own personal values and ethics. I, like you, don't – well, I do like you. But <laughs> similar to you, I don't go to Walmart. I don't go to Chick-fil-A. I've been trying to cut back on my Amazon purchases. But there are a lot of people who work at Amazon, and they they sometimes need that job, just like in the movie Nomadland. And so what are you going to do? Like Even Nintendo, they have this this wonderful public image, as far as I know. And they create all these family-friendly games. But you go back five years ago. Here's another headline from The Verge: Nintendo fires staffer who faced sustained harassment.
0: Yep, one of my acquaintances. Yep. Yeah,
1: you know, and I remember that story. And it was not acceptable what they did to this person. Does that mean that I stopped playing Nintendo games? <sighs> yeah. To your point, you you would have to cut yourself off from all of capitalism, which which might not be a bad thing because capitalism, in my opinion, is fundamentally flawed, but that's a different podcast.
0: Right, right. Uh, it just sucks that there's always so much we can do. Yeah. Uh, baby steps, I guess. Uh-
1: yeah. But, you know, we can support the individuals who are standing up and making their voices known, whether that is when people get laid off, retweeting the fact that they're looking for jobs because, you know, that social networking really can make a difference. And being open to hearing different perspectives about what is happening uh, whether it's by reading the news listening to podcasts like polygamer and just not making assumptions about what is and is not happening
0: uh, exactly yeah
1: anyway cool well we have talked a lot about dungeon dragons and about overwatch where i just about an hour i say real you're one of my dearest friends we could talk for ages and we do especially on the, <laughs> the transporter lock podcast but I do want to wrap up here and let our listeners know where can they find you online?
0: Yeah, uh, go to sabriel.me for my website. Go to twitter.com slash damesabriel because I bought my own knighthood like any other. You can also go to sabriel.gay, but apparently as we record this, for some reason it claims anything that you go to with that website is not secure. Even that's a lie. Even that's a lie. But uh, (laughs) (laughs) sabriel.me. Twitter.com slash damesabriel.
1: And how do I become a knight?
0: Uh, you go to the um, a website and buy it. <laughs> I'll,
1: if you send me a link, can I put it in the show notes?
0: Uh, yes. It's something with uh, Elkenbury. It's like a gift website. It's from the UK. It's great. Cool. They bought a manor so they can, and a little plot of land so they can give out knighthood.
1: <laughs> awesome. Kind of like how the Universal Life Church of Modesto, California will ordain anybody to be a reverend.
0: That's right. I am ordained as well, but from a different thing.
1: awesome so many ways to increase our stature i love it yes well sabriel i have had a pleasure chatting with you on polygamer thank you so much for taking time out of your day and i look forward to talking to you tomorrow on the transporter walk podcast
0: and seeing you in person in like less than a week
1: until next time
0: (laughs) uh oh wait wait uh hit it no wait i don't have to send off here This has been Polygamer, a GameBits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at polygamer.net.